You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Diary Podcasts with your host, Kai. Um, I think we'll move on to intubation, mm-hmm. um, something I don't know too much about and a lot of paramedic students wouldn't probably know too much about. I just yep. wondering if you could just explain what intubation is, why we do it, um, what are we trying to achieve with intubation and yeah, just all about it if you can. Cool. All right. Uh, so intubation, basically this is a form of invasive ventilation. That probably didn't tell you much. But look, basically you've got invasive versus non-invasive ventilation, all right? So if you do something invasive, i.e. you go and shove a tube in someone's trachea, that's pretty invasive by my book. Um, (laughs) And that's literally what intubation involves. So what it is, is that so um, what we're aiming to do is for whatever reason the patient may require this, whether it's a controlled environment or whether it's like an emergent sort of setting, um, we're wanting to basically put that nice little endotracheal tube in through the, you know, in, into the trachea, so through the vocal cords. We're doing that so we're able to control someone's ventilation, um, which by virtue of that we can also control, uh, you know, we can control their, their oxygenation, um, their, you know, things, it can be perfusion as well. Um, it can very much affect as well, um, you know, in terms of your surgical, uh, like your surgical management, and your surgical field and how they can operate as well. Um, so really in terms of types of intubation, well, there's a few different ways we can do it. So you've got the traditional, we say the endotracheal tube, we usually think of an oral route. So what we do is we have the patient induced. So we've given the anesthetic drugs. Um, we have also, you know, we, we've given a muscle relaxant as a rule with this as well. And so what that does is that also paralyzes your, you know, the muscles including around in your, like obviously your, your swallowing reflex as well. So what that will do is it allows you to put your nice little bendy, soft, flexible plastic tube in between those vocal cords. Now, for you to be able to see what you're doing, you need to be able to have a special piece of kit called a laryngoscope, which kind of looks like what the Grim Reaper gets around with, just on a small version. Um, and what that does is you guide it over the back of the patient's tongue and then you sort of have a, and then you sort of lift up a bit. And what that does is it lets you get rid of that, like it, it sort of gets over the back of the tongue and you can actually get, you can actually look in and actually see the vocal cords sitting there most of the time. Um, and then you can actually, you're basically trying to do it under that direct vision. So that's what we call a direct laryngoscopy. Um, now, in terms of other things you might do, you might actually do a nasal intubation. So there are some procedures where, especially if they're doing a lot of, uh, like, you know, for some of the ear, nose and throat kind of things or maxillofacial surgery and things, you might need to, you know, you, you might be in the way of where the surgeon's trying to work. So you might actually put your, your tracheal tube will actually go in through the nose. So what you do is for that is you just, well, you're going through the nose, obviously, but then you're still going to use laryngoscope to be able to see, try guide down through the same spot, basically. And the other form that you can do as well is there's the, uh, like, you know, you might do what we call an awake fibre optic intubation. So that is, that's a very, very advanced skill. And what that involves is you actually use, it, it's pretty much like a little, a, a little flexible tube on its own with a camera on the end. And you actually guide that down through the patient's nose as a rule. You can do it through their mouth, but it's often through the nose and you're anaesthetizing as you go so you're using some numbing spray and you're basically making that path to try and get through to you know to try and get a view of where your vocal cords are now the problem is is the reason why we tend to do that for some patients is it might not be possible to get a breathing tube in any other way so this might be you know our difficult intubation patients 
And when we say an awake fiber optic intubation, it literally means the patient's sitting on the edge of a bed. You might have given them the tiniest little bit of sedation if you game, and you're trying to get them to be as cooperative as possible as you can be for somebody that's having something, you know, put in whilst they're awake. So that can be, that's quite a niche thing and that can go wrong quite quickly if you do not have the right equipment, the right pairs of hands and you do not know what you're doing. So that's not something you just go and do for the likes of it. Um, so that's, that's, that's probably the main things. The other thing I'd probably add there is, uh, yeah, well, there's obviously, you know, a tracheostomies and stuff. Well, that's technically an invasive procedure. That's, that's a tube in its own. Um, so that can be done both electively and emergently. And again, the, you might be using that too for multiple reasons, but one of those things may be that someone's gonna be on long-term ventilation, like it might be beyond a few days. Um, so you can put a trachea in to reduce the amount of effort that it takes for the patient to need to breathe, because it's hard work. It really is, we take it for mm. granted until we aren't able to. Yeah. Um, so that's probably, that's another thing I'd add there as well. So that, that's kind of, they're, they're your different types of intubation basically. Mm. Um, some of the risk factors involved with the intubation, there's probably many, I'd say. There's a lot. Um, but then basically, and again, it's risk versus benefit and it's your preparation. Um, so in terms of the main risks, so the first thing we think of is, well, one, can we even do it? Mm. Are we able to intubate this patient? And two, do we need to intubate this patient? Like, why? Why are we doing this? Um, is it because the surgery type that they have is going to be, you know, it, 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 we're going to need to intubate for that. So, for example, if someone's having like your keyhole laparoscopic surgery, um, we're basically, we basically puff up someone's belly with carbon dioxide gas. And the problem is that also means that that's kind of, you know, that that can make it uh, quite difficult to achieve good tidal volume. So good breaths. Um, you know, with uh, you know, with with anything except having a breathing tube in, so your endotracheal tube. So that might be a reason. Um, another reason would be that you're worried the patient's going to aspirate. So by aspirating means that they basically puke and then they go and suck that back up into their lungs. No one wants that. Um, so that is a major problem, especially for people that are ticking all the boxes for being risk factors. So. Um, if they've just they, they just happened to go through the Macca's drive-through and then decided that oh actually I'm just going to go and wrap my car around the next bend um, and they're full of Macca's, mm. you don't want that coming up. No. <laughs> um, so that's a major problem. So basically, anyone that's not fasted um, is going to be we're thinking yep we we will need to intubate um, if it's a proceed you know if we're thinking a you know like if, like surgical management. Um, the obstetric population is also notorious because they're they're often not faster when they come to see us but they've also got a lovely gravid uterus there that's not going to let much get through as quickly plus the other problem is if they've if they've been in active labor um they get significant gastroparesis um so it means basically the tummy doesn't empty um look pain is another really bloody good reason um especially young kids young kids you'd be surprised how much they can sit there in their stomach until you go to intubate them they can be frightening um they're probably like they're, they're probably the main things, um, and you're also thinking as well like if you've got somebody who is unable to control their own ventilation. So if you have someone that's head injured, they've got an altered GCS, like you know a drug overdose, something like that. If they're not maintaining their own airway, they're probably not going to be maintaining their oxygenation and ventilation adequately. So they're the people that we go, okay, right, we need to take control of this for them. Um, and we can also do that if we feel that people that have been given a trial of 
non-invasive ventilation. So these might be people with a like with a heart failure or with um, like emphysema and things. If they're just not sort of recovering well and not doing well, um, then that's where we might have to intubate somebody. So that's another reason. So it's not necessarily surgical reasons that we're going to be intubating people. We often do it as a form of, it, it's a form of basically you're, you're trying to maintain someone's physiological balance. So whether it's because they've got a deficit in their respiratory system, whether it's higher up when we've sort of bombed out their, you know, have we bombed out their brainstem? Have they done, you know, what else have they done? What's what's affecting all of this? So, mm -hmm. you're you it is it's it's not just the airway and lung protection, but you're trying basically it's another way of being able to affect a lot of different systems, and being able to keep that patient safe. Mm -hmm. And you're, you're taking over someone's airway, so it's a massive, massive. Oh, procedure. it's huge. Yeah. When yeah. You, that's the thing. Like I, I just I suppose like you know we do it like you know when you when we're sort of doing it in and out, you go oh yeah 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 yeah. But it's, it's not like that at all. When you do stop and think about it, you go, okay, look, um, like this is incredibly important and you don't, you, you don't want to, basically you don't want to take it for granted. Um, there would be, you do hear stories every now and then where you've had someone very certain that they've put the breathing tube in the right spot. So by that, I mean that they've put it in the trachea and not in the patient's esophagus or the food pipe, um, because that can happen. And that does not always end up easy to recognise. So there have been many documented deaths where people have died because they were incorrectly intubated. So they actually, they died because of the resultant hypoxemia and hypoxia. Mm -hmm. So that's that's legit. Um, so it's, it, there's, there's a lot of things you're trying to, to kind of make sure you avoid. So you wanna make sure not just, you know, you're picking your patient, you're picking the mode of intubation. Um, you're picking like, do you need to do this quickly or not? Like, is this someone who, do you think that they're gonna desaturate really quickly? That's when you might think, all right, we need to have them very, very well oxygenated. Um, and you might also have them positioned in a certain way. So you try and maintain their oxygen a bit better. So you don't have them just lying flat or the patient may not be able to lie flat. That, that's another thing as well. Um, so you, basically you're trying to make the most of what that patient has in front of you and you want to try and work with it. You don't want to have to work against that. That's mm. that's pretty much the guts of it for me. Yeah. Um, you know, and and also if that's not going to work or if you can't get it, what's your plan after that? So we never never go ahead with anything without at least a second, a third plan. You need to talk this stuff out with other people in the room. Mm. That's why you've got a group of people. Mm. Mm. Um, that's really really informative. Really really good. Um, with paediatrics, do you have much experience with paediatric intubation? Is there anything different to you that you consider um, different procedure? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I have got, uh, now I haven't got a lot of experience with, uh, you know, under the age of two. And you'll find a lot of people in anaesthesia don't really, like they sort of would get a little bit uncomfortable once getting under that age bracket because that ends up, that's its own kettle of fish. Um, but for two and upwards, yes. So the look, the you sort of hear things where people say, "Oh, they're just like they're, they're basically small versions of big people," and it's like, no, that's not quite how it is at all. It's not um, superficially. Yes, you're still trying to do the same thing, right? Um, but the biggest thing is, is that you you don't necessarily have like your little person is probably not going to be very thrilled about having to come to theatre. They're probably not thrilled about you, you know, putting a drip in. They're not thrilled about any of it. So the way you have to deal with kids and, uh, you know, and anaesthesia is completely different. You, 
you have to let go of a lot of things. So normally when we would have, like as part of our monitoring, normally for, for an adult population or a, you know, or, or a compliant paediatric population, you'd have your usual, your, your standard monitoring, your pulse oximeter, you'd have a blood pressure cuff, um, you know, you'd have the um, ECG leads, you know, those sorts of things. Uh, PEDS cases, look, we, what we try and do is we get as far as having a SATS probe on, often it'll stick a one if we can, and you just, and the rest just has to follow. Um, the more that gets, you know, more that gets loaded onto a kid, the less likely you're gonna do well. Um, so we, that's where you have those allowances a little bit different, but um, you know, that, that's where we, our mode of anesthesia is a little bit different. So we would generally use gas induction for our small kids. Um, and we often use, what we use is we use that to actually achieve a plane of anesthesia. So our proper plane of anesthesia before we do anything else. So even putting a cannula in, we don't do that until we're very happy that kiddos anesthetized because even just doing that quick little stimulating procedure, that could be enough that, um, you know, that the airways can actually, that they actually can close. So it's a, a condition called laryngospasm and that's not great in kids. <laughs> um, so the main things are is that kids, yes, they're littler, um, so it means that by virtue, lots of other things littler, but they're, you know, things like their head size is actually quite big. So the way that you might, you know, in terms of your positioning is a little bit different. Um, in terms of what airway and what intubation equipment you're gonna use, there are slightly different blades that you can use. So there's the usual ones we use are what we would say like a, like a Mac blade, uh, so a Macintosh blade. But for kids, there's also the Millers or straight blades that you can use or even the McCoys. Um, but it, it does vary and you know everyone's got different things they do so the techniques are different and in terms of even sizing a tube is very different and even the airway uh, sort of features are different so one of the big things can be is that you might be able to get a breathing tube in through where the vocal cords are but in kids it's not uncommon for it to be narrower just below the cords so they're just little little differences here and there that you need to be mindful of. Mm -hmm. So that's that's a very different thing. And the other thing I would add is for kids, they really crank along really, really well. Their oxygen demand is significantly more than ours. Um, and in terms of things like their, their uh, cardiac output and things, they are very, you know, that's the thing, they, they work quite differently to us. So. Mm -hmm. Things that would intuitively be things we'd look out for for signs of you know of problems in adults are going to not really fit a peds population. So there's there are a lot of lot of things that do vary. Mm. So that's I think yeah. that the main thing is yes it's very very different, um, and even coming down to the type of uh, like you know in terms of how you even put the breathing tube in and even how to support a, support a child's breathing very very different. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. Um, and you talked about uh, monitoring a patient. So once mm. someone's intubated, what yep. are you monitoring and what are you looking for? Signs you're looking for the deterioration and things like that. Rightio. So um, look, basically, like if we just if we bounce back to adults here briefly. Um, so look, obviously, anaesthetic machines and things that we go working off all our monitors, we've got a lot of different swiggles and numbers and things. Um, so one of the things you want to know first thing is before you even go ahead and decide you're going to intubate somebody. So you want to make sure you're looking at what their baseline is. You're looking at their blood pressure, their heart rates. You're looking at uh, like you know you're looking at the you know what's what's kind of like you know how how they're actually kind of traveling along what's the rest rate what do they look like to you um so that's your first thing then your next thing is okay well all right i've decided i'm going to put a breathing tube and i'm going to intubate them great uh how am i going to do this 
all right, do I need to sit them up a little bit? Do I need to position them a bit differently? Can they lie flat? There's a lot of different things. So you can use, you know, you can, you can use various pieces of um, very uninteresting equipment like pillows, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. Pillows make a lot of difference. Um, like ramping your patients, stuff like that, just sitting them up a bit. Um, so that may be, you know, they're things you consider. Other things you consider would be, uh, you know, like the... You, you might want other pieces of monitoring. So you might think, okay, I might want to have a monitor that tells me, you know, how asleep or how alert the patient is, or one that looks at how, you know, how relaxed the muscles are. We've got a lot of different things that we use, right? Um, so if we've made that decision, we're happy with everything, and then we decide, let's get the oxygen in. We give a bit of time, fill the lungs up with oxygen, and then we decide, right, we're gonna do things. So immediately after intubation, the first thing I'm gonna be looking for is, I want to see that I can see a waveform for what you call the end tidal CO2. So that's basically what is the patient breathing out or what are, you know, what, what are they expiring? So the thing is, is that if you happen to be in the, what we say, the wrong spot for, uh, for intubation and you've gone and instead put it in their food pipe or the uh, esophagus, what can happen is you might notice that it, you just don't have carbon dioxide you don't see that trace coming back or you might see it coming back but then it just gets smaller and smaller and then you might find oh gee okay everything's alarming and gee I'm not getting any volumes I can't ventilate this person you might think mm, something's not quite right mm. so they're the kind of things we look for so the big things we want to look at is um, you want to have a look make sure that they actually have the entitled CO2 like make sure that it's coming back um, the other things you might want to look at is you want to see did their blood pressure just tank after you intubated them? Was it because of that whacking big dose of a muscle, like of, uh, of anesthetic drug that you gave? Um, you know, are they now really tachycardic and really hypertensive? Because when you intubate, you know, when you use the laryngoscope, that might have been quite a stimulating thing, mm. um, which look, that often is. So people can get a little, little brief period where that can happen. Um, and you can also, obviously, you want to make sure that whatever volumes that you've got or what, basically, you want to make sure that what you're, what you're aiming to achieve with your ventilation is what you actually wanted to do. So before you even started, you'll roughly calculated what sort of things you're aiming for. So you've gone, okay, how much minute volume, minute ventilation do I want? So that would be your tidal volume. So like a, just a normal in and out breath. And then you would multiply that by the amount of times you want someone to breathe in a minute. So you might say, I want to give this person 500 mils tidal volume and I want them to have, I want them to breathe, you know, every six seconds, which is going to be like a respirate of 10. And so you go, great. So that's into, you know, you've already had that, you've put that into your ventilator settings. Um, you've had them pre-oxygenated, so you've given them 100% oxygen. Um, and you might have wanted to, you know, you, there might have been a few other bits and pieces that you, you wanted to sort of tweak as well. But the main things are you want to make sure that you're achieving what you're wanting. So let's say you're getting those numbers and the ventilator is achieving those numbers. But you're also wanting to look at how is it doing that? <laughs> what mode of ventilation um, have you actually turned the ventilator on? Because some ventilators you have to actually flick a large switch. Like you can press all the buttons, but unless you actually physically flip it over, it's not going to. So it, it varies. Um, airway pressures, um, you, you want to look at basically, this is where it becomes quite complex. There are so many things that affect the patient's ventilation, not just how they are physiologically and how, you know, and how they are, but also what the hell we're doing. And then we add surgery on top of that. So it's, there's a lot, mm, mm. there's a lot. And 
yeah, that's that's really good. There would be definitely be a lot to monitor. I feel like people don't understand that that part of anesthesia of how much there's, there is to there's monitor. There's definitely yeah, there is. There's yeah. a lot to monitor. Like okay, you sort of go okay, yeah, there's a couple of screens. Okay, there's some squiggly lines. Oh, yep, cool. There's some numbers. That's good. Okay, right. You go. Yep, I got a. What have we got? We got some red numbers. Okay, yes, yeah, so we got a red, and we've <laughs> got okay, that one, that one, that one. Okay, cool. I hear it beeping. That must be the pulse ox. Okay, great. Um, which. After a while, you do get a sense of those things. Like you can literally, you can hear when someone's heart rate drops down by one per minute. You'll know because you just go, "Ah, oh, that was slightly different." It's it's that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing is, is that you can look at like absolute numbers and and things like that. But you're even looking at the shapes of waveforms. You're looking at the change in how they appear. You might be looking for things that indicate that something has changed. So, the, you know, like the, the muscle relaxants wearing off or the patient's got a, you know, that the patient is getting nociception. So they're actually getting a pain stimulus, but they're not in such they don't actually have such in pain because to have pain you need to have upper you need to actually have cognizant awareness Mm. um so it's there's so many things and even how you ventilate someone you might go well who knows i you know like how much how much pressure do i have to apply to fill those lungs up to that volume and you know if i speed up how frequently they breathe then I've got less time to achieve that volume. So therefore, wow, I'm gonna have to ramp that pressure up a bit more. There's just so, so, so much. And that's the thing, the squiggles themselves may seem relatively simple, but then you look and you go, oh, hang on a second. No, but it's all the other things that contribute to the squiggles. It's knowing that stuff. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the stuff you kind of need to know if you're going, hang on, something's not quite right. What do I need to do? I need to change something. So that's the kind of extra things. And knowing how to fix it. Mm, yeah. That's right. A yep. lot of it is the troubleshooting. Yeah, yep. definitely. Um, you talk about end tidal CO2. Yes. Um, can we go into that a bit more? What is end tidal CO2, um, normal ranges? and? Okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, so your end tidal CO2, so that's obviously, so let's say, you know, you've got your person, you've got your, your patient puffing along on the ventilator and, you know, so what's happening is at the end of a, basically at the end of the end of the breath, so at the end of expiration phase of the breath, then there is a reading that is taken from, so we've actually got a, uh, so we we have a lot of different monitors as part of our anaesthetic equipment. Um, But what that does is it's, um, so it will actually, it gives a value based on the amount of sort of sampled gas that's also taken out from the whole of the anaesthetic circuit. So it's taking a little sample um, it's usually about 200 mils a minute, I think it is. Um, and what that does is it sort of takes a little sample going, okay, how much carbon dioxide is in this? How much volatile agents in here, if that's relevant? Um, you know, how much oxygen's in here? Like it, it, it's basically giving a snapshot and then going, this is what we've got. Um, and so a normal value would be usually 35 to 45 millimetres of mercury. So that's your normal physiological um, sort of range. Um, that obviously can alter in different physiologic states. So for example, pregnancy is actually one where the end tidal CO2, you would probably expect to be closer to 30. So I think probably one of the classic examples would be if you had an asthmatic pregnant lady come in and she's got an end tidal CO2 of 40, you're thinking, hang on a second, no, she's, we're, she, she's underventilating, we're in a bit of trouble here, she's not doing well. Um, so yeah we we have and this is the thing there's a lot of ranges there's reference ranges but you also need to allow for different physiologic states 
Yeah, so traumatic brain injury, would that be one where you hyperventilate or it just uh, all depends? Okay, so generally what happens with so a traumatic brain injury, um, so again, it, it depends on a lot of different things, but often what can happen is if your brain stem, so obviously that's pretty much your, you know, that that's, that's pretty much your basic do the breathing thing kind of wiring. Yeah, yep. Now, if you start mucking around with that, um, you will often cause a an alter like an alteration in how respiration occurs, like how how your vent- respiration occurs. So, um, people can have a they they often can actually underventilate, um, and part of that is because as you're squashing that brainstem, it's not working properly, so it's not going to get those little messages out, those little neurons. Uh, trying to fire out a message saying, "Hey, can you take a breath about now?" They're 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 on the fritz. So it's you know that that's something that can occur. So that's and that's again you know when we think of things like your Glasgow Coma Scale and we the reason why we have things like that is if we notice that someone's GCS is dropping off, that can be a really good sign that something's you know it's it's saying something's very wrong, and it may not necessarily tell you exactly where, but if someone's alertness level is dropping off that is a very big concern unless that's something you're expecting or it's because you've gone and given something and you're you know you, you're allowing for a particular effect so no extremely sensitive way of identifying something's not right mm, definitely definitely um intubation and extubation hmm. so extubation we haven't really like yep. dove on can you just go into extubation a little bit and what it is and yeah definitely how important it is extremely um <laughs> <laughs> Rightio, so extubation. So basically what you're trying to do is undo all the good things you did when you intubated. Um, So you're wanting to take, basically what you're wanting to do is you're wanting to make sure that you can actually wean the patient off your ventilator and you're wanting to remove that tube. So the thing is, is that if you have a look at, when you get the opportunity to have a look at a breathing tube, you can see they're actually not very wide at all. Um, So like, let's say a size eight endotracheal tube has, I think, what is that? That'll be a internal diameter, I think of eight millimeters. Um, So it's like, that's a hell of a lot narrower than than what our adult trachea is. Um, So when you think about that way, you're trying to breathe through a goddamn straw and that takes a lot of effort. So part of the reason with ventilation and our ventilator settings is we often provide pressure like you know we we often we mess around with uh, like you know with basically pressure supports or we you know different forms of um you know pressure provision so we're able to help overcome that worker breathing um so one of the first things i'll be looking at is you're going well okay right has the surgery finished um have we you know uh, do we actually need to extubate this patient right now so that'd be your first thing because we don't always extubate people that we have intubated a prime example of that would be somebody who has come through the emergency department and they've come in in status asthmaticus and they've been intubated downstairs and they're going to go to icu ventilated so that would be one you're not going to like we're certainly not going to um Another reason why we might not want to extubate somebody is it might be because they're probably going to go back to theatre within the next, you know, eight to 12 hours um, and there's really no benefit in waking them up in between. So that might be somebody who's had a very big bowel surgery or a big bleed, um, you know, open abdomen, things like that. So they're they're things we would not do it for. Um, Another reason you wouldn't extubate might be because you just go, this this patient is not well enough to wean off a ventilator. So this, this is the thing. The aim of this is you're taking that little tube out and you're taking them off a ventilator because you feel that they are able to adequately maintain their own airway and their own ventilation. So 
The things I normally consider uh, prior to extubating would be the duration of the procedure and what we've actually had done. Uh, the second thing would be what were they like in the first place? Like, you know, was this somebody who was pretty fit and well or is this going to be somebody who's going to be difficult to take that breathing tube off or take them off the ventilator because they're very comorbid, they've got bad lungs, they're fat? Um, you know, like, is there other reasons that we need to be very careful with this? Um, and that happens more often than not, to be honest. Um, you want to know, when was your last dose of muscle relaxant? Um, and it depends on what you've used as well. Um, so like, you know, if you've only just given a dose of muscle relaxant 10 minutes ago because you thought the surgery was going to go half an hour longer than it actually has, well, you're thinking, well, they're probably not going to breathe, are they? Um, so you need to make that assessment as to, will they be able to breathe without assistance? And that's where the importance of not just your muscle relaxants, not just the choice, but obviously the frequency of your dosing. You need to know about the metabolism of the respective drug or drugs that you've been using, because if people have problems where their kidneys aren't working very well or their liver's not working well, well, maybe that drug's going to hang around a bit longer. So you have to allow for that. Um, and you need to consider, well, do you have ways of being able to reverse that extra um, muscle relaxant um, you know at your disposal and we generally do that's generally not an issue but that's another thing you want to make sure that you're able to reverse whatever residual muscle relaxant that that patient has on board if you're wanting to take that tube out mm. so what I normally do is you know you get up to the end of the procedure um, I've worked out I've been going okay look I've probably already spent a period of time just trying to you know basically trying to get the patient off a full um, a, like you know a full ventilation mode like where I'm the one dictating when they're ventilate like when they're breathing or how much they're breathing um, I actually try and give them a it's almost like a, it, it's a trial of kind of supported ventilation so it means that I've actually got a little bit of um, what they would call, it's, it's almost a bit like a, it's almost a bit like BiPAP in a way. Um, so you kind of say, all right, here's some, here's some PEEP, five centimetres of water, and that's going to happen throughout the respiratory cycle, no matter whether, you know, whether it's breathing, not breathing. And then I might say, all right, great. Well, I'm going to set up a backup rate of a respirator of six. So at least I know that they've got a respirator of six. If they don't do anything, I know the, the ventilator will. Mm. Um, and then if they do happen to trigger a breath, here's some additional extra pressure support I'll give them for them you know, to give, give them an opportunity to breathe, like mm -hmm. to try and help them along. And I may also make the ventilator less or more sensitive as to whether, you know, whether it'll trigger a breath. So again, this is where it starts getting quite complex. There's a lot of things you can do, but basically what I'm trying to do beforehand is before that tube, before I'm even thinking about that tube coming out, I want to see, can the, is the patient actually initiating any effort? Um, what sort of volumes are they getting? Do I, can I already kind of start weaning them as it is? So they're the things I'm looking for. Mm. Um, and if I feel like that's working, that that could be okay, then that's where I go, all right, great. Um, so I'll actually start. Uh, so what I would do is I'd actually back off the, um, like the anesthetic agent. Like by this point, you're trying to work out, well, how long have I got before they're gonna wake up? Are we still, you know, are we doing things like making sure the patients, you know, that they've, been, they've all been, you know, like cleaned, wiped down. You wanna make sure they're decent. You don't just want people, you know, like, you know, coming in and I don't want the patient waking up whilst they're, you know, not in a very elegant placement, shall we say. Um, like I'm kind of, I like people to have a little bit of dignity. Um, 
So you, you're trying to really organise a lot of things. And the other thing too is, again, with our bariatric um, population, of which we're seeing more and more of, you need to be able to work out, you need to get that patient not just on the table, we need to get them across onto their bed and you want to make sure you've got enough people to do that and you want to be able to keep, basically, you're not going to pull that breathing tube out until you're absolutely happy you've got the patient on the bed and you've got them positioned in such a way that you're really happy that it's going to be the safest option possible. You do not want to be trying to do that whilst you've got a patient still half asleep um, you know, you've only got one other person in the room to try and move a patient across or that you're waking them up too early when we're still scrambling. Like that's, that's not, that doesn't help you. Mm. So there's a lot of factors to consider. It, it is, definitely. yes. You want yeah. to make sure enough people, you want to make sure they're, you know, are there signs that they're actually already, you know, that they're able to breathe quite nicely on their own as it is. Um, were there problems interoperatively? Like you're thinking, well, was that really hard to ventilate that patient? Did I have an absolute nightmare time trying to keep their oxygen levels high enough? Like it's, it's that sort of stuff. Um, so yeah, for me, Try and, you know, try and get a hint of where they're at breathing, like in terms of can I, you know, do they look like they're already kind of well on the way, the muscle relaxants kind of wearing off. Um, another thing that we do is we actually assess the degree of, um, of the blocking of the, you know, of, of their muscle relaxation. We've got a special little monitor that looks at that. Um, so we use that and we can actually guide our, you know, the amount of muscle relaxant or the reversal that we use. So we try and time that as well. That can be very helpful. Um, and of course, then you, you're trying to time when you're turning the anaesthetic off because it takes time for it to sort of wash out or to break down. So you're doing that. Um, once you're happy with that, then getting them across to where they need to be and your positioning is another super important thing. So you want to make sure, are they, you know, for someone that I'd be worried about, I'd want them sitting basically almost bolt upright in their bed. Um, I want to have like the knees flexed so then they're not going to just slide down the bottom of the bed. Um, I want them suctioned. So airway suction is so important because if, you, if you've gone to all that effort and got them through all of that and then they go into a laryngospasm because of some airway secretions, that just makes everyone sad. <laughs> so, you know, that, that's kind of the stuff I'd be, they're, they're the things I look out for. And the other thing is basically if I have any doubt, if I think someone's going to be a nightmare to extubate, I plan ahead early I will actually ring and I'll say hey um, can I have a hand or can you just be can you just be outside the door here in 10 minutes or whatever I, I think this person's going to be difficult so they're the kind of things um, but that, that that's the major stuff but in terms of the danger the danger can be that you pull that tube too quick so it might be that you go oh yeah you're pretty happy that they're able to breathe on their own well they may not be able to the thing that was probably that might have had them breathing might have been the fact that there was an annoying breathing tube there and that was just annoying enough for them to be stimulating and that they breathe and you take it out and it's gone. Um, other reasons could be that, you know, it can be dangerous if, yeah, if they're still too anaesthetised, if they've got muscle relaxant on board. Um, are they someone that's already got, you know, that they've got other comorbidities that can make them more prone to complications? So again like the obesity kind of component crap lungs that sort of stuff mm. um also they can't protect basically they need to be able to protect the airway so if they can't um you know like the what traditionally used to have happened was you'd say okay can they lift their head off the bed open their eyes on command um you know if you saw that you'd go yep cool let's just pull the tube but it's been well proven that that's not nearly enough so you need to be really sure so for me, I like them to open their eyes. I like them, basically, if they're reaching for a br the breathing tube to say, hey, can you get this thing out? I'm usually pretty happy. Um, but I also want them to have a time where they're demonstrating they can breathe nicely on their own 
without the ventilator, breathing tubes still in, and then if I go, yep, great, they've been, you know, they've been ticking along like this for a while, I'm actually happy just to take it out. Um, but for really high risk ones, you basically let the patient take that tube out because mm -hmm. you don't want to be having to turn around and attempt to re-intubate again, mm -hmm. especially if that is somebody who was extremely difficult in the first place. So that's not the good. thing. No, mm -hmm. so the, mm -hmm. and this does happen like not often, but look, every now and then we have those moments where that does happen. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah, well, it's a lot to consider and it's, it seems like it's very important it's, it's it's a lot, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it probably it's sounds worse than what it is, but I just like I. It, it's still it, it's it's still the stuff where they say, well, look, do do your basics well, mm. um, and you you know it's you, you you really that that's the best you can do, I think. Mm, yeah, definitely. and and especially if you aren't sure of something, it's like God, no, don't don't stick your neck out. Mm, mm. And there's always people around you can call, like you said. Well, see, I think that's the advantage we have too. Mm. We have such comparatively, we have a controlled environment. You guys walk in and go, well, this is a shit show. I'm trying to get a history from someone who's hysterical or someone that might be nonsensical or there may not be anyone there. Um, and you're trying to work out not only what needs to be done now, but you're going, do they need to stay here? Do I need to intervene and do something here now? Or do I package them up and get them out? And where do they need to go? And where can they go? It's a lot more difficult for you guys. By the time we have patients coming and seeing us, that stuff's been dealt with. Mm. We have a relatively controlled environment. Yep. Always someone to call, and that's what we do as well. There's always someone to call, someone higher up, which which helps everyone. Yeah. You always need someone. Oh, definitely. Yeah, for sure. Um, I've just got some questions from the listeners. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, what is pre-oxygenation and why do you pre-oxygenate? All right, so pre-oxygenation. So what we're aiming for here is you're looking at the... Well, my, my simplest way of putting it is this, is... So we give a, you know, a high fraction of inspired oxygen. So by that, I mean that the amount of oxygen you breathe in as a, you know, as a percentage, we increase that artificially when we're in theatre. So normally, like at our normal ambient, um, you know, fraction of inspired oxygen sitting here is around 21% oxygen and your 79% nitrogen is usually the teaching, right? Um, so... The thing is, is that we deliberately crank that oxygenation up. So we make it an FiO2 of one. So it means it's 100% oxygen. And the reason we do that is, so when we say to patients, oh, we want you to fill the lungs right up with oxygen, um, all the way down to your toes is usually what I say, because you're wanting to, you're not just wanting them just to take nice little pathetic little, you know, I can't be asked or small tidal volume breaths, if they're able to do that, of course. Um, what you're wanting to make the most of is, uh, is the, uh, the functional residual capacity. So basically that is your, that, that's pretty much your volume of, that, that's pretty much your oxygen store within the lungs. Mm -hmm. And when we fill that up with oxygen, we are at the same time displacing nitrogen. So the process of pre-oxygenation itself is we're getting rid of a lot of nitrogen in the lungs. And what that allows us to do is it increases our safe apneic time. Now by that, what it means is, let's say that I've had someone breathing 100% oxygen, they've been doing all the really good things and we've got their FRC filled up quite nicely. And let's say, I think for a 70 kilo patient, it's around, I think about 2.1 litres. Um, so normally 
we would think, okay, great, we've got about 2.1 litres sort of a stockpile of oxygen kind of thing. Um, and you think, all right, well, I'm happy now. I'm going to go and give my drugs, make this person go off to sleep. Now, if I hadn't done that and I just had them just breathing in room air like this and we just decide to shove a breathing tube in or like, you know, basically shove the drugs in, we're looking at the safe time, like, but the time it is before we start dropping someone's oxygen levels. So the thing is, is that normally we use about 250 mils of oxygen a minute and we would probably get, you know, we, we only really get about a minute, maybe in a minute and a half of that sort of safe apneic time at an ambient oxygen that we have here. Whereas if I go and get someone to breathe 100% oxygen, we're going to stretch that out to probably seven or eight minutes. So that's why we do it is because we, we do it for everybody because not only are we, we're, we're flushing out that nitrogen, but we're also buying ourselves time in case it is not easy to put a breathing tube in somebody. And look, some people have terrible, terrible physiologic reserve. And, you know, you might think, oh, yeah, cool, I've, they've been well oxygenated they still might tank their sats even after 30 seconds, no matter how bloody good you thought the pre-oxygenation was. Mm. And that's for lots of other factors, mm. but that is why we do it. So we pre-oxygenate to get rid of the nitrogen, but it also buys us that additional safe apneic time. Yeah, so it buys your time. Absolutely, yeah. remember yeah. your oxygen dissociation curve, your oxygen hemoglobin dissociation curve, you hit that point of you know where you're sitting with sats in the 90, your PaO2 is about 60 millimetres of mercury, and you see how bloody steep it goes, right? So when you see someone sat sitting around the sort of 90 mark, you know that things are gonna start dropping very fast. Mm. That's why, and that's how come we pre and that's how come we get really tetchy when those sats start dropping down to the lower 90s. Mm. If that's out of character for your patient, that's what makes us nervous. So that's why that's why we take that so seriously. Yeah, yeah. So that's a major thing, pre-oxygenation. You betcha. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Awesome. Absolutely. Awesome. Um, your schedule for a day in the hospital. What would it yep. look like? All right. So schedule for a day. Um, so look, the main things would be is that you've probably had like you know we all have different allocations. So um, you know we might be you know let's say like I might be in the emergency theatre for a morning and then I might be doing you know I might be on another list in the afternoon. So usually what you usually be like half seven in the morning something like that. You come into work um, and you, depending on what list you're doing, so whether it is in the emergency theatre, whether it's wherever else it is, um, you know, you obviously, you make sure that you've got, you know, you sort of know, okay, how many patients have I got? Uh, what procedures? Are there any special concerns? Um, who am I working with? You want to know, um, and also, you know, you're also wanting to know were there, you know, beforehand, uh, were there things that you needed to sort out beforehand? So, look, normally for me, I would actually look the day before, um, as what a lot of people would do as well. Um, so you look the day before, and you sort of look, you work out what your list is, and you have a look at the patients that are listed on there. Different for an emergency theatre, because it's just you walk in, you just deal with it. Um, which is kind of my preference. Um, <laughs> and uh, you have a look and you go, okay, great. So you sort of get a feel for the patients, the procedure, the surgeon. Um, you're sort of getting a feel, okay, what sort of day is this going to be? So, you know, if you're going to have lots of patients, it's going to be a quick turnover. Oh, hang on, it might be one patient, but it's because it's a full day case and it might be very complex. Um, so that's the thing. Like, you, if you look the day before, you get a, you kind of get a feel for that. So you, you're making an assessment of how to make your day work the best it can um, and trying to identify any issues early that might affect how that runs. Um, now, obviously, things change throughout the day. So sometimes people cancel their surgery. Sometimes a patient gets added in. Sometimes, you know, someone gets to, you know, they, they get all the way in and then they've realised they've had something to eat right before we're about to go into theatre. You know, 
we do have it so you do this to you know sort of identify those issues mm, yeah, um, yeah now some of us will also have times where we're allocated um, additional roles so some people would be allocated they might have a role where they're covering both the met so the emergency team and they might be also covering the obstetrics phone so that means that you're also covering labor wards that might be you know any epidural calls troubleshootings with epidurals um, if someone's going to come to theater for a you know postpartum complication is an emergency caesar um, any of those sorts of things that's an additional thing that you may be required to do um, so it does it does depend so each sort of type of yeah that, that that'll usually be it but usually for us around 7 30 get in work out what the hell's going on start your list at eight um, usually a session what we would call a session is like a half day so usually a list would run from like eight till say you know 12 30 um, and then the afternoon list would run from like 1 through to 5 30 or whatever now yeah thing, things kind of vary a little bit um, but that, that's generally how things would work. So that's that's pretty much it. But the guts would be 7.30, figure out what's going on over half hour, hopefully start at eight. And then if you're switching lists or we're going to a different theater, you'll switch over and start on that particular theater or that list at one o'clock and then go through to, you know, go through to the evening. Mm. Mm. Busy. Yeah, it's, and yeah. that's the thing, it can. It can be, um, like COVID obviously made things a bit more complex. Um, but yeah, like there'll be some days where you might be going, my God, there's no one in theatre. And it might be because everyone's sick with COVID and we can't run a theatre. Um, either that or it's a public holiday and like everyone did for Christmas last year. Don't ask me why. I've never seen so many people come in with appendicitis on Christmas day in my life, but apparently you all did. <laughs> So if you're around Midland, yes, yes, I saw you Christmas Day. <laughs> we couldn't believe how many appendix cases came through. <laughs> yeah, wow. Um, no, that's a good insight to what your day looks but like, yeah. definitely. But yeah, it does, it yeah. does vary. Like, yeah. And we do rotational shift work as well. So, yeah. um, you know, that's, that's kind of the other thing. Um, and you'll have, in some hospitals, you might be the person that's also, um, you know, you're also acting as the duty anaesthetist. So you are the anaesthetic contact for the hospital. So if you're out of hours, so if you're night shift or evening shift, you are also carrying the, you know, you're carrying the duty anaesthetist phone. So, uh, you know, certainly for Midland, and it would go for other places as well, for example, you would be the person that anyone calls for stuff that needs to happen overnight so they ring you so you're acting as in that role um but you can always phone a friend so that's that's also a good thing so yeah ah, awesome hmm. awesome um just one more what, what was your longest procedure you've ever done or been a part oh, of longest procedures by far would have to be plastics cases um so they would be especially when you've had people that have a lot of reconstructive surgeries um and certainly i'd say probably the longest would be yeah over 12 hours yeah wow um wow. so look and that's the thing look some procedures will go over that again but it's a lot of the especially reconstructive cases can take many many hours especially if they are you know collecting a graft and when they're collecting a graft area then they're having to meticulously you know make sure they get all the layers right make sure they don't damage the blood vessels make sure it's all kept really well and then they've got to work out, okay, great, now we've got to plumb this into the spot that we want it to go to and plumb all that back in perfectly. You don't want that graft to die. You've just busted your ass to put it there. And that takes many, many hours. Mm. So that is, um, I'd say, yeah, plastics are probably the, that would be the longest cases, I would say. Um, what else would probably come close to that? Yeah, plastics, 
not that I've had a lot of experience with Burns cases, but some of those they kind of tie in. Um, look, and the other thing that would be other, I think other procedures as well, not so much what I've, I haven't had a lot of experience with these, but things like, certainly things like cardiothoracic cases, especially if they're transplants and things like that, for sure. Mm. Some of those can take many, many, many hours. So yeah. definitely. Yeah, a lot to monitor in them, how it was Ooh, yeah. a lot to do. That's yeah. a lot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think we've um, covered everything we need to cover. I think we've, you've done a really good job. Oh, thank you. I felt yeah. like I just gas bagged too much, but um, <laughs> no, no really but it's good. kind of a and it's kind of hard because I'm like, well, I don't quite know where to was where to kind of pitch this, but mm. I'm more than happy for people to, um, you know, sort of throw questions and stuff. Mm. Mm. Um, and obviously, I've got you know, there's if there's um, specific niche questions or stuff like that, by all means, happy to, you know, definitely happy to volunteer whatever information I can. And if I don't know it, one, I'll be honest about it. Um, and yeah. two is I know the kind of people that will be able to answer the questions. So yeah. there's no problems there either. Mm -hmm. no, that's awesome. Well, thank you for coming along and thank you for talking about anaesthetics. Oh, thank awesome. you. Yeah. And uh, thank you for having me. No, that's all right. All good. Yay, uh, getting to play with the ambulance. <laughs> Yay. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.